If you were with us last week, it starts a long section in 2 Kings that deals with what I said and the scripture confirmed was probably going to be the best overall king Judah ever knew. Hezekiah, which means strengthened by the Lord. And to put it plainly, scripture says he was the greatest king before and after because of his trust in the Lord. Go back to chapter 18, verse 5 from last week. He says, he trusted in Yahweh, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among them who were before him. So there's never been another king in Israel like him. And what is the what is the main thing that God looks at that he's judging this guy by? It's that he trusted in him. No matter what the conditions outside look like, no matter what the wind and the waves and the motor was supposed to do, he trusted in God's provision. He trusted in God's promise. He trusted in God's hand being on top of things. And as, as we started Hezekiah's life, we, we looked at some things that were good, but not perfect. We included last week his, his only recorded fall. Not that it's probably not his only mistake, but and scripture told us that he would never fall like this again, which I think is significant. You know, he had that hard lesson because everyone needs to learn faith. Anybody got natural faith? Is there a such thing as natural faith? There's a God given seed of faith. But there's something special about somebody who's had their faith grown just a little bit. Anybody ever experienced some growth in faith? A little bit, a little bit of strength inside of it. Maybe a boat experience. Maybe a, a wind experience. Maybe, maybe a whole different kind of experience. Maybe it was a death experience. But, but an experience in life where, where God was able to, to take a condition that looked horrible and grow you from it and strengthen you from it and do something supernatural. And I think that's what he does with with Hezekiah in that incident last week, he used it to, to grow Hezekiah and allow Hezekiah to become this, this man that we're going to talk about for, for chapters and chapters and chapters because of his trust in the Lord. We talked about that he started off great. He reopened the temple and he held Passover and Passover was so good. They said, man, let's just, let's just do this thing two weeks instead of one. It'd be like me preaching for one hour and you guys saying, give me the second. Don't be scared. I know you're not going to, you're not going to ask and I'm not going to give you that today, but. He removed the high places and the idols and he even took that, that, that bronze statue of the snake and, and, and broke it down and reminded him, guys, this is nothing but little pieces of bronze, not something to be worshipped. He rebelled against Assyria and he refused to pay him, breaking the deal that his own daddy had made with him. And then we, we got to this transition right before where Mitch read where Assyria called his bluff. And, and, and I left this out last week because it, it goes better with this week. And we need to be reminded, especially as, as men. As believers and, and, and women in, in a whole, if you're going to make a bold statement, if you're going to make a bold move in your faith, you better be ready to back it up. That makes sense. I know a lot of people that will make a bold statement. They will they will hear a story like Beth and 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 uh, and, and God was supposed to say, but he chickened out because he's not a crier either. I'm sure. Um, you know, their whole family's not criers. They just keep tissue boxes with them. But you know, as as that goes on. And, and, and he'll take those those moments and those situations and he'll grow us from them. But if you hear that situation, say, man, that, that would be me. I would be the husband who would be that that full of faith. I would be the woman who is dying and, and still asking blessings over my. You better be ready to back it up. So that's where Hezekiah messed up. He he made this bold thing, you know, about four to six years into his reign. And, and he said, you know, why are we going to why are we going to keep paying Assyria? They're. they're they're not supposed to be our allies. They're not supposed to be our friends. Let's, let's stop this thing. And then on that 10th year, Assyria said, you know what? If you're going to stop paying, we're just going to come get. 
And it was at that moment we looked at last week where, where Hezekiah, you know, he, he chickened out. He couldn't stay with it. So he went and started gathering all the gold to, to pay back. And, and in that process, he stumbled and he fell. Proving that God can use something even that's not, not perfect. And he was reminded of that fall of the northern kingdom and the, the fear that that probably put into him and, and the mistake that goes in. And I tell you, it is always a mistake to surrender to the enemy. And then we, we get to this, this section today. Hezekiah makes up his mind for him and his people where he's going to trust God. And, and just go back. I got it broke down. I know it's a long section, but I got it broke down into like five things. And you could really title this how Hezekiah handled his, his struggle with evil. And, and I think if we're going to be the people of God that we're supposed to be, we're going to realize that we're going to have to struggle and fight with evil. So we're going to need to know how to, how to handle it. So here's the first one. And the first one's just setting the scene. But to set the scene, you got to go back one verse from where Rich read. So chapter 18, I'm going to go back to verse 16. And it says, at that time, Hezekiah stripped the gold from the doors of the Lord's sanctuary and from the doorpost that he had overlaid, and he gave it to the king of Assyria. Now, the guy we're talking about that had complete trust. Next week, we're going to talk about his faith that, that he had. So, so trust built on, built on the Lord increases our faith. So that ties all three weeks together just so you get a, a, a preview of what's to come. But here we read, this guy was so desperate, he started stripping the doorpost of the church to get enough gold to pay the enemy. And then in verse 17, where Mitch started reading today, it said, then the king of Assyria sent the field marshal, the chief of staff, notice I ain't saying all them hard words, I'm telling you what each of them words mean, and his royal spokesman, along with the massive army, to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem, they advanced and they came to Jerusalem and they took their position by the upper pool, and they called the king, who was in charge of this place, and the court, and the secretary, and, and, and he sent his three men, and all, all this is going on. So he, here's what I got to ask. What happened between 16 and 17? 16, where we ended last week, we got this massive breakdown of fear and doubt and worry. And because of that, he's, he's literally stripping the, the church from gold to pay back the enemy. Then in 17, we've got the exact opposite taking place. He's He's calling calling men to stand face-to-face, eye-to-eye, toe-to-toe with one another. Kind of like those adults stood with those kids yesterday in kickball. And if you skip forward to 18, which or 19, I'm sorry, that we read last week as well, it says, then the royal spokesman, so one of these guys that are standing toe-to-toe with both sides, he said, Hezekiah, what is, what is this trust that you're trusting in? He's basically saying, what, what are you really relying on how have you gone from a man of fear to a man of faith what has happened that has changed you so quickly and if you're going to be bold and then stumble the best thing you can do is recover as quick as possible because the longer you stumble the easier it is to fall further down the hill he recovers quickly and what what kings leads out the writer of kings he admits we get filled in on second chronicles chapter 32 so if you got your bibles if you came to church without a Bible, steal somebody's and look on with them so you can feel like a holy person. Second Chronicles 32, this writer fills in the gap and he says this. After the faithful deeds, talking about the enemy of Assyria, he came and he entered Judah. He laid siege to the fortified cities. Remember, Hezekiah had made a deal. I'm going to take all this gold. I'm going to give it to you and you're not going to attack us. When you make a deal with the devil, quite literally... He's going to take more than you promised. And that's what we see happening. Hezekiah's made this deal. 
But then verse 2, it says, Hezekiah saw that he had come and he had planned to have war on Jerusalem. So here's what he does. This is in between 16 and, and 17 from 2 Kings. So he consulted with his officials and his warriors. Notice he doesn't do this thing on his own. There's something special about like our, our small group when we get together and we meet with one another and, and we get advice from one another and we grow one another in the right way. Even Hezekiah himself, who was the leader, who was, who was a man of trust and going to be a man of faith, he still, he still consults with his officials. He grabs his warriors and they have a meeting. And here's what he tells me. He goes, guys, we're going to stop the flow of water from the springs that are outside the city. And I need your help. Verse 4, many people gathered and they stopped up all the springs and the stream that flowed through the land. And one of them finally asked, he says, why? Why are we doing this? What's, what's the big deal with this water? He goes, well, if the enemy's coming to attack and they're bringing in such a large force, eventually in this, this battle, they're going to get thirsty. And if we stop up the springs and there's no water outside our city gates, there'll be no way for them to get something to drink. So in essence, what he's doing is two things. He's setting up a plan to, to hopefully hinder the enemy just a little bit, but he's also letting the enemy know, like, we know you're coming. This is not a guessing game. We're going to stop up all the water right now. We're going to conserve as much as we can. We're going to make outside these walls miserable for you because we're not playing any games anymore. We're not surrendering. We're not giving up gold. We're not, we're not looking for a way to pay you off this time. We're willing to fight this time. Then Hezekiah, he strengthened his position. He says, you know what? We're going to rebuild the broken down wall. We need some men that are going to build up broken down walls. We, we need some men that, what else he says? We're going to hire the towers. Outside the wall, we're going to repair the supporting terraces all around the city of David. We're going to make an abundance of weapons and shields. Hezekiah has totally changed in two verses and from a mistake that he made. He sent the military leaders over the people. And he gathered him. Here's what I want you guys to see. This one's on the screen. He's determined to lead his people to trust God. You've got this this scene that's said of an army sitting up on a hill ready to attack. They send out a, a small group of people, you know, different positions, leadership positions. Hezekiah sends out his his men. But while all that's going on, verse six said that he set the military commanders and the people and he gathered them together in the square of the city gate. Then he encouraged them, saying this. Listen up, men. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or discouraged for the king of Assyria or before the large army that is with them. For there are more than us than with him. Now, you know, if you're sitting in this crowd, you're probably scratching your head because as Mitch just read, we already know one of the ways the enemy's going to going to get him into doubt. He's going to say, man, if you guys even have 2000 people, I'll give you the horses for 2000 to ride. That's how many extra extra men we got. So we know this is a large, large army. Yet Hezekiah's viewpoint has totally changed. Now he's gone from fear into faith. Verse eight, he says he has only human strength, but we have Yahweh, our God, to help us and to fight our battles. So the people relied on the words of King Hezekiah of Judah. You notice the only thing the people needed each of the times they did something great for Hezekiah was him to stand up and be the man he was supposed to be. Think last week to, to stand up and be the man he was supposed to be. They had Passover, went that extra week. And right after that, do you remember what they did? The people. The people went and tore down the idols. The people went and tore down the high places. The people went and destroyed all the things that were being done wrong inside God's town and God's promised land. And here today, we've got a group of, of people that he gets together. And just because he's being and behaving and acting and responding the way he's supposed to as a man of God, it says that the people left and they relied on the words of Hezekiah. 
I wonder as dads, if we're speaking the right words to our kids. As dads, if we're speaking the right words to our spouses. As dads, if we're speaking the right words to the community in which we live in. And the reason I have to worry about it and wonder about it is because of this. I think kids, spouses, and the world around us, they'd be doing what they're supposed to be doing if we were speaking like we're supposed to be speaking. Hezekiah said clearly, he didn't have to bribe them. He didn't have to beg them. He didn't have to put any kind of, of special fear, positive motivating fear into them. All he did was speak what God had told him to speak and started behaving the way God had told him to behave. And the people themselves, and here, here's what we said last week, Hezekiah understood that if we can get people to meet with God, God will take care of the rest. He knew his role. He had one role to introduce people and to be the spokesman for God that he was supposed to be. And he said that God will take care of the rest from there on out. If you look at your families, if you look at your loved ones, if you look at your community, your neighborhood, or, or wherever else you're looking, and you're not happy, think about the words you're speaking, how you're acting, what you're doing, and see if that makes some of the greatest differences in what's going on. He encouraged them. So, so he stops the water, rebuilds the wall, he gets towers built higher so he can see better. He starts making weapons. He starts making shields. He sets up leaders. He makes a strong military. And then he encourages them with the word of God. So this, this scene is set. Do we, do we have a good set for the scene? Everybody getting a good picture of, of what's about to go on? This, this would make an awesome movie. It really would. So you've got an army coming in. They stop just, just short of, of busting into the line. you got another group getting ready and, and blocking up order and, and getting the town ready. And just like every scene in every good movie, you've got to have a villain. So you get to 19 through 35. Thank God for Mitch Reddit because I can't say about a quarter of the words that are in there. And you got this long section. Here's what I want us to get out of this. Any, any, anybody ever, other than I know Brian did, anybody else play some ball where you had film time before you played an opponent? Neil, you with me? Brian, you, you remember, Matt, Matthew, you, you guys remember like why you'd have film time? What were you doing? What were you studying? Their moves. Their strategies. You know, the writer of, of Kings, see, he doesn't spend a lot of time on a lot of people, and it's because he only focuses on what happens with the high places. But two of the longest sections he writes, well, three, I guess, if we include Solomon. Three of the longest sections he writes about Solomon. Then he writes about Ahab for a long period of time, who was a complete failure, but it was some lessons to be learned. And now Hezekiah, and in Hezekiah, he spends a great portion of Hezekiah's story talking about how the villain attacks. I think Sunday sometimes is, is like film time before a game. We're getting and we're watching the strategy of the villain, the enemy, so we can figure out how to combat him just a little bit better, right? I mean, God's plan is not, it's not like a, not like a secret. Like he, he's got it all right there for us if we would open our eyes and see it. So here's, here's some of the strategies, not only the king of Assyria, but I think Satan uses to intimidate us, to deceive us, and to persuade us to, to turn against him. Number one is this. He mocks their strength. That sounds weird to say, but you ever had the enemy throw your strength in your face? Look back at 19. Remember what he said? He goes, man, what are you trusting in? What are you relying on? What is this trust that you have? And what he's saying is this. He's mocking their strength because he's mocking their faith. He's saying, I can't even see what you guys are trusting in. You can picture him standing on this big old hill and this mass army all around him. And he's looking around. He's like. I see what I got, but what do you have? And the enemy sometimes will try to mock your faith. 
He'll try to mock things that, that are unseen. And he'll try to he'll try to get you to, to get your eyes off of that and start looking at what's so obvious. And what this enemy is saying is like, I, I don't see it. Your feeble attempt isn't going to do anything. Verse 20. Not only does he mock their strength with, with that first word, then he calls Hezekiah's words useless. He probably had like a little a little ear that had heard what Chronicles 32 said. He goes, man, that guy's just boasting. And he's speaking truth. He's speaking truth. He can't see what the enemy, well, or he can't see, I'm sorry, what their faith is in. He can't see these useless words. And here's, here's maybe a little, a little through-in lesson for us. You ever, you ever hear people tell you all the time, just speak it? Just speak it, right? We got some prosperity guys where just speak it and it'll happen, right? And we get that going, I got news for us. You can speak it all you want to, but until you act on it, you ain't going to get it. You know what I'm saying? Like you, you can speak it all day long. You can look at the scale and talk to it uh, uh, until until the battery dies. And that's the only time it's going to change. But if all you're doing is speaking and a bunch of jibber jabbers and a bunch of talking and there's no action to ever back it up, I'm going to tell you, that's all you're going to get is a bunch of words. So he, again, is speaking truth about their strength. Man, Hezekiah had a great speech. You know, he, he was he was encouraging. He was ready to roll. He goes, they think they got more, but we really got more. And, and, and he's motivated to say, we got God on our side. And if that been all he did. He would have failed. So you, you got a, a part of the truth without the whole truth. And, and that's what the enemy likes to do. Verse 21. He, he, he goes back to it. You guys remember when Pharaoh helped you? That guy's like a reed. You, you ever seen a reed in the water? It's. it's Flimsy, you can't use it as a walking cane or nothing like that. He's saying that, that guy's nothing. This is how powerful Assyria has gotten. They've wiped everybody out. They're not worried about anybody. Verse 22, he mocks the strength that Judah would even take in God. He goes, oh, oh the, God, you guys have started destroying his places. He's speaking truth. Did they not destroy the places? What he's trying to say, he's trying to play on their mind. He's trying to say, man, you guys have less opportunity to be with God now because there's some of his places have been taken away. But again, he's only speaking partial truth because God would much rather have false places taken away and have genuine true places than ever have more of the fake places. That makes sense. So he's, again, he's, he's speaking truth, but only only partial truth. Verse 23, he questions their overall strength. We, we talked about just a minute ago. He goes, man, if you guys even got 2,000 men that are able to fight, I'll give you the horses so they got something to ride on. That's how small he's thinking they are. Verse 24. He wants to know, what, what is this rebellion even really about? What's it really going on? Are you sure this is what you want to do? And then verse 25, the big ouch that he closes out with it, at least for, for this moment, he says that you can't even trust God because God's on my side. And is he not speaking even a little bit of truth then? What did scripture tell us for, for, for multiple weeks? God sent them to do what? Punish? Oh, we don't like that part, right? He sent them to punish the people because what? The people had broken their covenant. Am I right? A promise that was given all the way back in Deuteronomy when the first covenant or original covenant was made with the people. He's even using this. It's almost like you could say this. So as he's going through all this thing, and I think the, the enemy will do this with us as well, a complete total mocking of, of strength. He's saying you're weak, your allies are weak, and your plans are dumb. Kind of like Goliath when he stood up to David on that hill. And he said, what are you, what are you coming at me with, sticks? What, 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 am I supposed to be worried about what you're, you're coming at me with? And as he mocks Hezekiah and he mocks Judah, 
I'm reminded that this is what scripture tells for us today. Satan is an accuser of the brethren. Now, what, what does that mean? Satan is an accuser of who? Us, the believers. He didn't have no reason to accuse anybody else. It comes from Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Now the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before day and before night. Zechariah chapter 3, talking about Joshua, the, the priest, not the Joshua that led him into the promised land. Verses 1 through 5, it's not on the screen, but, but in scripture says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of Yahweh, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Yahweh said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord has chosen Jerusalem to rebuke you. It is not a, a brand plucked from the fire. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel, and he spoke to those who were standing before him, and he said, Remove the filthy garments from him again. He said to him, See that I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with the right robes. Then he said, at least I put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they clothed him with garments while the angel of Yahweh was standing right there. What, what, what it's saying is this. Satan is, you know, you picture that, that scene we like to have of a, of a good angel, bad angel on the shoulder. And, and, and Satan is standing there and he's accusing him of all his faults, all his sins, all his stuff. And, and at least part of what he's accusing him of is true. Because what, what did the scripture say? Joshua was clothed with what? Filthy garments. He really was dirty. And the enemy is going to use the truth about you to haunt you and to hurt you if you let him. But he's only using partial truth. Because what did the rest of the verse say? Well, God looked at him and said, look, I'm going to strip off those filthy garments and I'm going to clothe you with the right things. So, again, partial truth that the enemy will use against us is constantly something that he's doing. Trying to outnumber them. Was it true? Yes. Did God send them? Yes. But the truth that it leaves out is the God factor. Because scripture tells us we don't stand in our own strength. We don't win the battle in our own power. We don't proclaim uh, for our own righteousness. As Joshua said in, uh, in, the, in the book of Zechariah, remove the filthy garments from him and see that I've taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with the right robes. Joshua's heart probably sunk when Satan started reminding him of how dirty he was. How many times has the enemy tried to remind you of how dirty you were? The mistakes you made. What he did to other people. What he can do to you. And when those moments come, we must remember that Jesus is what made the difference. The, 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 the Lord is what makes the difference in, in battles like this. Much of what he says may be true, but, but the difference is understanding who our strength truly comes from. They never forgotten Hezekiah's people in, in this battle, at least finally, they never forgot that God was their strength. No matter what the enemy was throwing at him, God made the difference. Second thing he does right here, another strategy. Not only does he use strength against them, he confirms their fears. Look at 26 through 30. 26 through 30. King of Assyria and his people and his spokesmen. Still talking. In this section, they, they, they even get worried. They say, man, don't, don't speak at us in Hebrew. We, we understand your Aramaic that you're speaking. Now, why would these loud speakers be speaking in Hebrew? They want the people there. Why, why? What did the people around speak? Hebrew. So if you want everybody else to hear and understand your threats, you speak their language, right? And, and, and Hezekiah's people were smart and said, man, we, you don't need to be shouting out in all that voice. You, you just talk to us in, in your language. We're smart enough to, to speak both. But the enemy said, no, I'm going to speak in your language so you can hear it clear as day that I want to instill a fear inside of you. How afraid must these people have probably been? 
even though the, the confidence they were doing, even though they were standing firm in their, in, in their, in their agreement with God and, and what they were doing, I don't care how, how firm you stand when you look out and you see thousands of people to hundreds of people. When you remember what they had just destroyed and who all they had destroyed on their way to get to you. And I think that's significant and awesome because here's what it is. Courage isn't the absence of fear. It's moving forward despite fear. You're not courageous if you have no fear and keep moving forward. You're courageous if you have fear, but don't let it stop you. Sure, there was an element of fear in their hearts. And, and this spokesman for Assyria, he, he wanted to remind them of it. He wanted them to focus on it. He wanted them to, to obey their fear. And he wanted everybody to do it. That's why he speaks in their language and he made their fears seem like a reality. Does Satan not do the same thing to us? When he makes fear, or, or you could say it this way, he, he counteracts the call of faith with the confirmation of fear. Counteracting the confirmation of faith with the, with the confirmation of, of fear itself. Remember Peter, Luke chapter 22? He looked at him and said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. I love it because one, he had to ask permission to get him, but two, he does it. And you remember what tactic he used to go against fear? The first one was a fear of arrest. Then there was a fear of torture. A fear of shame and a fear of death. Satan continued to work on Peter over and over and over again. Because when God calls us to step out on faith, when God calls us to trust in him, Satan will go into overtime to try to stop us from fulfilling what God has called us to fulfill. And just like that villain to to, did to Judah, the villain does to us today. Here's another thing he does. Not only does he mock strength and confirm fear, he appeals to their lust. Satan's real good at this one. He's making captivity look as good as freedom. Look at 31 and 32. Don't listen to Hezekiah, for this is what the king of Assyria says. We can make peace with you guys. If you surrender to me, the enemy will always get you to surrender and think you can have a peaceful surrender. Then each of you, you'll get to eat from your own vine. You'll get to eat from your own fig tree. you get to drink water from your own cistern. And then, then he adds that, that little bit of truth in with it. Until I come and take you away from that land, then I'll, I'll give you another land that's got all that stuff again. Because the Assyrians were known for once they defeated somebody, they would remove them from the land and take it away from them. So he's making captivity look as good as freedom and as good as possible. John chapter 8 reminds us, you are a father of the devil and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. It does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan is a liar. The villain is a liar. When he said you can keep your vineyard, it's a lie. When he said you can keep your fig trees, it's a lie. When he said you can keep your water supply, it's a lie. He actually is trying to tell them, man, even after I take that stuff from you and put you into this, this new area, it'll be just as good. You can remind, you can possibly even think of them thinking back to the, to the moment where they, they came out of Egypt. And you remember God had supplied all their needs, but not all their wants. And they got to a moment where they got mad at Moses and they're like, man, we're, we had it better when we were in captivity than we do right now. And that's so easy for us sometimes to be fooled by Satan in losing our trust in God and thinking we had it better when we were living by the ways of the world than the ways we are now. Just like the lies he threw out in Genesis chapter three when he started the whole thing in that garden. It was a deliverance that appealed to lustly flesh of man. Notice what he's not promising. He doesn't promise a righteous lifestyle which is something they should have been pursuing. He doesn't promise peace with God. He says, peace with me, something they should have been pursuing. He's promising better vines, bigger figs, and more bread. He's promising things of the flesh. 
James writes to the early believers in chapter 1, telling them how Satan operates. And here's what he says. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one, here's, here's the one nobody likes. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. The reason we don't like it is this. And here's what we need to understand. Satan is only offering what you already want. Do we understand it? You wouldn't be enticed by it if you didn't already want it. I, I tell the men sometimes, I've told you before, we, we get so mad at, at, at porn websites and, and porn magazines and, and, and all this, all these statistics where in hotels and how high the statistics go and all that sort of stuff. They wouldn't have an industry if we didn't want it. Is it right? Huh? We, we need to understand the truth. Those shows wouldn't distract us from scripture if we didn't want to watch them. Right? That that attitude and that selfish greed of pleasing myself rather than pleasing my family, you wouldn't respond the way you respond if it wasn't something you wanted. Right? When James says, but each one is tempted and carried away and enticed by his own lust, what he's saying was if you didn't want it, Satan couldn't have got you to do it. So therefore, we can say it this way. The best way, or or maybe the, the warning, since we're talking about strategy, the best way to open yourself up to the deception of Satan is to crave physical lusts, whatever they are. So therefore, the battle plan, because we didn't just watch film to know what they were doing, we developed a battle plan. The best way not to be open to it is to not crave it. Work on your cravings, right? Goes back to standing on the scale. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to lose weight. Not if you can't stop craving sugar. Right? You got to work on your cravings first. And just as this villain is trying to do with Judah, he does with us. He, he mocks their strength. He confirms their fear. He appeals to the lust. Then he encourages their doubts. 33 through 35. Has any of the gods, lowercase g, has any of the gods of the nations ever rescued this land from the power of the king of Assyria? Have we lost anything? Have we been stopped by anyone yet? Verse 34. Where are the gods of of those places we've already destroyed? Hamath and Erpad. Where are the gods of, of more places that I can't pronounce that we've destroyed? Have they rescued Samaria from my power? Well, what is Samaria at this moment? You guys remember? Right, but it's the capital of Jerusalem. What he's saying is this is prime time location that we're taking over. Who among all the gods of the lands has rescued this land from my power? So will, and I love, I love at least how the enemy knows to differentiate between gods and Yahweh. So will Yahweh. The Lord, capital L-O-R-D, rescued Jerusalem from my power. What, what's he saying? He's saying nobody's had a shot against us yet. You guys were so afraid. Let me, let me make sure. You know, you should be afraid. You should be afraid because even your own God didn't stop us from destroying those ten tribes to the north of you. We talked about last week how scary it is sometimes when we watch our spiritual heroes fall. How, how much different a, a, a praise time would have been if they didn't take this lady's death the right way. It would have been nothing to praise, right? It would have been a sad story. It would have been heartwarming and, and all whatnot for sure. But it becomes a praise report because they can approach death the right way. They can celebrate life the right way. If, if it had gone any other way, it wouldn't have been a praise report. It would have been a prayer request to build their faith back up again. And what he's telling us, man, God, God hadn't stopped us yet. What makes you think that he'll stop when we come your way? 
And now the, the leader of Assyria returns that doubt and he says, you know, as, he, as he's saying, if God didn't do it for them, he won't do it for you. He, he's trying to build up their doubt. Build up their doubt. You, you remember Jesus when he was tempted in the garden? Or oh, I'm sorry, not in the garden. When he was tempted in the wilderness? He had gone away. He's by himself. And, I, and I, I'm going to play a little twist on it here in a minute that, 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 that makes a little bit more sense sometimes when you think about it. But as he goes away, here, here's some of the, the thoughts. Matthew chapter 4. And it says, And the tempter came and he said to him, If you were the Son of God. Now, not promote a little doubt. Five and six. If you were the Son of God. God will rescue you. You wouldn't have nothing to worry about. If you were the Son of God, God will provide for you. Satan is trying to appeal to Jesus' physical lust. And they're not even bad things that he's appealing to. Some of these are good things. Food, protection, good things. Satan's trying to cause doubt. Doesn't God provide for you, Jesus? Doesn't God agree to protect you? Wouldn't God protect you if this happens? And he builds on this doubt and encourages this doubt. And as a villain, he's desiring for them to turn away from faith and start operating in doubt, fear, and lust. But we as believers don't make decisions based on doubt, fear, and lust. We make decisions based on truth and based on faith. And as we go through this thing and we've got this scene, we've got this villain, now we get the response. Third third point, third area, whatever you want to call it, the the response, you could call the silence. Look at 36 and 37. Some of us could take a great deal of knowledge on how to respond to the enemy or those we argue with on a daily basis from this right here. But the people kept silent. They didn't answer him at all. For the kings even commanded them, don't answer him. You ever want somebody to be real mad at you? Just don't respond to them. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your breath. I, I love it. And, 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 and not, not trying to be mean to people sometimes we argue with, but if somebody's not going to listen to you and they're, they're not going to you know converse with you and try to build things up in a positive way, why waste your breath? My favorite thing is now we, we've, got, we've got believers who think like they can, they can preach to the devil. You can't preach to, you can't tell the devil nothing he don't already know. You're wasting your breath. It is not beneficial to converse with the devil. And, and to be honest with you, it's not even spiritual. Have you ever thought about some of this stuff? Look, look at Zechariah. Go back to chapter 3. It said, the Lord said to Satan. So he picked on Joshua. Remember, he's pointing out Joshua's faults and all that stuff. But it said, Yahweh said to Satan. What did Yahweh say? The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, Yahweh has chosen Jerusalem. But you know, In Jude chapter, or, well, Jude's only got one chapter. So verses 8 and 9. The, 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 the archangel Michael, who I would consider a pretty heavy fighter if we were getting in a fight, am I right? It, it, you know, if, if you were to set up a scene like that. Here's what it says. Yet in the same way these men also by dreaming defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they reveal angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil, so Jude's telling you, he goes, when, when Michael, the archangel, fought with the devil, and they were arguing about the body of Moses, he did not dare pronounce against him railing judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. Even, even he knows who does the rebuking and, and who doesn't. When, when Peter, Peter calls them, them false prophets in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 says, Daring self-willed, they do not tremble when they reveal against angelic majesties, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a revealing judgment against them before the Lord. What, what's he saying? He's saying your job isn't to converse with Satan and the villain when he's tempting you. 
You're wasting your breath. Save your time. And here's where I want to get a little a little twist on, on how Jesus did it in the, in the temptation of the wilderness. I'd never thought about this way. So Jesus is alone. He's in the wilderness. He's been there for 40 days. If you've been there for 40 days, now remember, I, I know, you know so many things, well, he's 100% God, but he's also 100% flesh. If you've been in the wilderness for 40 days, don't you think somewhere in your mind is going to be a thought, man, I've got the power to turn all these rocks into bread. Right? Like, there's really no need for me to be hungry. I can just do that and have bread. And what does he do? What does he do? You ought to know this scene, at least. Even if you don't know word for word, I don't care. Man does not live on. He quotes some scripture. Now, I've always thought, and I'm not to say this isn't it, because you'd have to definitely agree on whether he was physically with Satan or not. I've always thought, man, he was talking to Satan. What if he's just talking to himself? What if he's quoting scripture to himself to protect his thought life? He had a thought. Man, I can turn all these rocks into bread and have something to eat. And he's, ah, but man, man doesn't live on bread alone. Check that thought out. Then the next thing, what does it say? God promises to protect me. So if I was to jump off of this rock, I could be saved and rescued and protected. But then what does he do? Quote scripture again. Now, I understand if Satan was physically there, you got to take it from both judges. He was, but... What if it was just that thought again? What if it was just an idea? And in his brain, he goes, you know what? I don't tempt the Lord. All right, so he's talking to you. And, and, and here, here's where I kind of got this. Because it's not until, and not, not until this last temptation that it actually says Satan was, was, is actually mentioned, right? And, and here's why. Because what does it says on the last one? If you will worship and bow down to me. So now there's no guessing game. Jesus knows who's putting these thoughts in his head. He knows where these thoughts are coming from. And, and what does he say then? He just says, go, get behind me, whatever, right? Notice he quoted scripture the first time when he possibly didn't know. For I mean, I know God knows, so it's kind of a, a weird thing for us to even think about. He quotes scripture again when he's talking to himself in his thought life. But when it's actually for sure that it's Satan now, if, if, if you'll bow down and worship me, he doesn't he didn't, he didn't battle him at all. What does he just say? Go, we're done. I'm done with this. I ain't wasting my breath. This ain't the way it's supposed to be. What if we would do that sometime? Is that not a great way to battle? Understand, now Satan's going to get in your thought life, so you're going to have to have some ammunition of Scripture to fight with. But once you realize what's going on, what if it was just a, you know what? Get away from me. Get out of here. Go. I'm not debating. I'm not arguing. I'm not going on any longer with this thing. Peter describes it this way. First Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. It says, be, sober, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences uh, of suffering will be accomplished by the brethren who are in this world. It doesn't say rebuke him. It doesn't say mock him. It doesn't say argue with him. It doesn't even say reason with him. What it says is what? Resist him. Resist him. And the people here in Judah, they, that's what they're doing. They're resisting. They're just, they're just ignoring him. Probably like David would have wrote about in Psalms uh, 38 where he says, but I like a deaf man. I don't even hear. I like a mute man. I'm not even going to open my mouth to you. Yes, I'm like a man who doesn't hear and, and a mouth who has no arguments. For my hope is in Yahweh the Lord and you will answer. Oh, Lord, my God. This is some of the best way to deal with an enemy attacks, guys. Our response sometimes should just be silence. Silence, but in the right way. Now, that silence only goes so far because right after silence, look at how 19... 
one through four open up. So you get the, the response and now you get the appeal. Verse one, it says that he tore his clothes and act done. When God was blasphemed against verse one, again, it says he covered himself with sackcloth and he entered the house of, of Yahweh. This was humility as he sought out deliverance of God. The first thing that one, that who Hezekiah goes to is the Lord. He goes to the Lord. Look, look at what he does. It, it's so awesome. He goes to the Lord and he sends what? Three messengers to who? Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is a prophet. They didn't have a whole lot of writing and reading skills back then. So would it be safe to say as Isaiah being a spokesman for God, a prophet, that he sent in three people to the word? Makes sense. So he himself is going directly to God. He sends three people to the word. Whenever you need an answer for how to take on the enemy, you go straight to the Lord and then dive into the word. Right? Sometimes I think we, we look at scripture and we look at prayer and we look at all this stuff as like a last result. How many people have come to you or, or have you heard that they come to a situation like, well, we've tried everything else. Now we think we'll ask you to pray for it. Why not prayer be the first thing? You know what I'm saying? Like, why not? Why not prayer be one of the first things? Why not seeking an answer out from the Lord be the first thing? Big decisions to make in life, big places to go or, or big things to talk about. We wonder like, I, I'm not really sure. And I've been weighing this option. I've been counting the numbers and, and I've been checking this out. Well, why don't we just seek out and see what God wants first? Wouldn't that be a lot easier? Wouldn't we save ourselves a lot of stress, a lot of time? Something as simple as a wedding yesterday. I had a, had a customer or somebody, they were talking about they had down to two wedding venues and, and they prayed. And, and then the next day, like this, this scene came on the TV. It was just a, a very vivid, clear image for them on where to get married at. Not even to get married, but where to do it at. You know what I'm saying? Like, it was just so clear. And I was like, man, I wish we would sometimes just stop and pray and seek God on where to do everything in our life and how to do everything in our life. How to be a good parent, how to, how to raise children, what, what to do and what not to do and, and what not. So the situation, the honesty here in this request, verse three, this is a day of distress, rebuke, rejection. For children have come to birth and there is no strength to deliver. You guys understand how Hezekiah is describing the situation? His honesty in the situation is great. He's saying, I know there's something to birth. But it's like a, like a mother who, who has this, this something to birth inside of her, and she's given all she's given. And she's at that final leg, that final lap, and, and she just can't go on any longer. I, I think my wife is super tough. Right. I think, think she's strong. I think it was awesome watching her deliver and, and not take any pain and shots and epidurals and all that kind of stuff. And but, man, in that process, I've never seen her so tired, so exhausted and so wore out. And that's what Hezekiah is saying. He goes, we can't do any more physically than we've already done. And if something supernatural doesn't happen, we are powerless to allow this situation to go. We are, we're, we're, we are too weak to go on any longer. So what's he saying? He's saying, God, we can't do it on our own. You realize one of the greatest prayers we could pray is just tell God, God, I can't, I can't do it any longer. And the honesty behind that, God, I need you to stand up and, and defend me. Verse four, perhaps Yahweh, your God will hear all the words. Now you got to know God's already heard all the words, but in verse four, Hezekiah thinks it worth r- reminding whom this master, the king of Assyria, has sent to approach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, offer a prayer for the remnant that's left. 
He's saying, God, I know you've heard him, but I want to make sure you understand. He's, he's calling you out just as much as he's calling us out. And we don't have the power to rise up and, and go against him anymore. So I'm asking you, God, to do it for us. Like a David moment of Psalm 74, arise, O God, and plead your own case. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you all day long. Do not forget the voice of your adversaries, the uproar of those who rise against you, who ascends continually. Like God needs to be reminded, but man, is it not good when we know that God's on our side? Hezekiah took the trial to God under attack, not strong enough to do it. He knew it. Assyria knew it. Everybody knew it was impossible. But they forgot about God. And they forgot about what God could do in the essential part of the battle and the appeal. You notice how after Ephesians chapter 6, when Paul mentions all the, all the battle stuff we put on, put on the breastplate, put on the helmet, grab your sword, put on the shoes. Ephesians 6, 18, he says, and after you put on everything, go in with all prayer and petition and pray at the time of the Spirit. And with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for the things. You put on all your armor, you be prepared, but then you make sure you take it to God. Because if you put on all that armor and you're as prepared as you think you can get and you leave that last part out, it's going to cause a stumbling block. And that's what God desires to do. Look at the end right here before we jump into the, the last section of this chapter next week. So you got a scene, you got a villain, you got a responsive silence, and then you got an appeal. And folks, when we follow that order, the Savior comes. Look at five, five through seven, the promise that we get in chapter 19. We're going to get it fulfilled later, but the promises will be enough for this week. So the servants of King Hezekiah, they went out to Isaiah, and they said to him, tell your master, Yahweh says this, don't be afraid because the words you have heard, for which the king of Assyria's attendants have blasphemed me. I'm about to put a spirit in him, and he will hear a rumor, and I will turn on his own land, and I'll cause him to fall on his own sword. If you get nothing else out of today, guys, please hear God say verse 6 to you. Don't be afraid because of the words you have heard, for I'm on your side. What he's saying is why everybody, and this is what's actually going to happen in this promise. And it's really quite beautiful, to be honest. So you've got these, these groups facing each other still. Thousands of soldiers and army men lined up, ready to fight. And then you've got God who loves to save today. And he says, behold, I'm going to put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land. What's going to happen in verses 32 through 37 is, is just that. They're going to be lined up for battle. These, these three guys who are, who are down there talking with, with the other guys from the other side, when they return back to the hill where the army is, the leaders are gone. They heard a rumor about something going on in the land. So the leaders left. So they get back and like, what, what are we going to do? What, what do we do now? So they say, say, in verse 32 through 37, they say, you know what, we, we're going to go back, but we'll, we'll come back and finish this fight later. And if you finish chapter 19, you understand they never come back. So exactly what God promised is exactly what happens. This, this, this king of Assyria goes back to his own land, and it says in verse 7, it finishes verse 7, he says, I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. So what he says is the deceiver will first be deceived, Remember, this guy's been trying to deceive them the whole time. So now the deceiver will be deceived. I'm going to put a spirit in him that he'll hear a rumor. Then it says the destroyer will be destroyed. I will make him fall on his own sword and his own land. Satan may attack. But when God's people trust in him, God takes care of how the battle falls out. We learn this, this lesson of, of, of blessing. And what a blessing it is to trust 
God. Hezekiah is known because he trusted God. Even when the enemy and even when the villain tries to desire and discourage him, even when it doesn't make much sense, we trust God. And he knew that if he can, the enemy knows that if he can separate us from God, we prove to be an easy prey. Why do you think he works so hard to keep you away from the word? Why do you think he works so hard to keep you away from, from coming to church on a Sunday? Why do you think he works so hard to keep you away from, from Bible study groups or whatever night of the week you meet up with people and just study the word? Why do you think he works so hard to, to get you tired so you don't want to open the word? So you don't want to have time to read? Why do you think he works so hard to destroy your relationships at the house and, and put separation? Because if he can separate you, you're easy prey. When it says that he walks around like a roaring lion ready to devour, you ever, you ever watch lions actually attack? They attack the weak guy. They, they attack the one that's at the back of the pack. They attack the, the little fella. We, we told our, our kid, or well, mostly just Reese, but we told all the kids, you know, the other day, our Wamaran had come running down the driveway and the, the male lady was just laying on the horn going crazy. And I said, what in the world? Like, I'm coming to get the package. Calm down. Like, no big deal. She said, oh, no, sir, I don't care about the package. She said, your, your dog is toting a deer down the, down your yard. I said, my dog is toting a deer. Now, that's some cool sounding stuff right there, right? We got a little wine runner, man. I think we got like a mini wine runner. He's not even like a real one. We paid the real price, but I think they ripped us off, right? So, so I'm like, how's that thing toting the deer? I walk out there and he's toting the deer. It's... <laughs> That little punk's like Satan. You know what I'm saying? Like, he couldn't go get a full-size deer. Here's the funny part. So you can keep your awe to yourself, okay? Here's the funny part. So the next morning, barking, 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 barking. I can normally tap on my window and he'll stop. He's, he's, he's a dummy, but he's all right on, on stuff like that, right? I can yell his name out the window and what, if, if the tapping didn't get it, he will definitely stop that. Keep going, though. He's, he's going crazy. I walk outside and what I assume to be, I don't know, mama deer is standing in the middle of the yard. She ain't moving. She don't care if he's barking. She don't care if he's growling. She don't care what he's doing. I'm blown away by this. I ain't never seen a deer just stand there and let a dog go fool at him without him running away, right? That little chicken, he won't get within 50 yards of mama. He's way over here on the other side of the house, barking and yapping and, and jumping forward and scooting back. And it's just a perfect picture of how Satan does us, guys. If he can get us separated from Abba Father, he's got us. If he can separate us from our brothers and sisters in the church where, we, where we've got no, no growth, no unity, no strength to rely on, he's got us. If he can separate us from our spouses and our children in our home, he's got us. Because there's that, he loves separation. Why do you think unity is probably one of the most important things a body of believers can have? Now, unified for the right reasons. All right, we shouldn't have to go into that. That should make sense. But that unity, man, it's so powerful and so important. Look, look at this last section, James chapter 4, verse 17. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. What does it say? Does it say preach to the devil? Does it say yell at the devil? Does it say tell the devil some, some stuff? No, it don't say none of that. It said resist him and what? He'll flee from you. No, he'll flee. That's what it says. Literally, if you just resist him, he will flee from you. You, you ever watch? I mean, go back to that big cat thing. Now, dogs got a little more endurance, I guess. 
But, but I was watching the, the big cat challenge to see which, which one of those animals was the best. And it was going on and on about the power and the weight and the strength and the jumping ability and, and the speed and all. And then the guy says this right here. They did a film where the, the antelope got away and then the lion just quit. And it said, but they can only exert themselves for a minimum amount of time. And I think that's kind of like Satan. Not because he can't, because I don't want to underestimate his, his power. The Bible says Peter just told us foolish people do that, right? But he's such a weak and feeble coward, mostly because he knows he's already lost, right? That once he realizes he can't get you, he'll move on to something else. He'll move on to someone else. That don't mean he won't come back and he won't try again. But it says if you'll resist him, he will flee from you. Draw near to God. This is the way you resist him. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. You double-minded, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord Yahweh and he will exalt you. Maybe you've got a villain that's after you. Maybe you've got temptation and thoughts that are coming in your head and you hadn't realized it's, it's just Satan's way of of setting you up for a trap. James says it clear. He says, resist it, humble ourselves, come back to God and, and just tell God, God, I can't handle it. You realize how, how, how God works. He just wants us to be honest with him. The, the men in the upper, the men in the construction room, our upper room is, so we're in construction. The men in the construction room, you know, we, we look back at that guy in Matthew multiple times over the last couple months. And I'm still just blown away by the dad that took his, his kid to Jesus, and, and he told him, he goes, I need you to help my unbelief. That doesn't seem like that's the prayer that, that you'd want, right? Don't you want somebody who's got belief, who's got strength? No, he said, I want you to help my unbelief. This, this is Hezekiah. Hezekiah coming back to God, and he's coming back to the Word, and he's saying, look, here's the reality. We are powerless against the enemy. I don't know what your temptation is. I don't know what your struggle is. I don't know what your fight is, but maybe you're like a Hezekiah situation where, man, you've You've exhausted yourself to the point of delivering this thing that you thought was going to be birthed inside of you. And it's just not coming to. And God says, I just want to hear you be honest about it. And Hezekiah says, we can't do it if you don't do it. I can't overcome this problem if you don't allow me to overcome the problem. I, I can't deal. Not even overcome as it had never happened again. You remember what Paul said? He said, I had this thorn in my flesh. And it wouldn't go away. Don't you think Paul is, is probably one of the second to the greatest spiritual people in the New Testament? Don't you think he prayed about a thorn in the flesh? Don't you think he asked for deliverance about it? No, it doesn't say I couldn't deal with it anymore. It just says it was never delivered from me. So what Paul is saying is he goes, though you chose not to deliver it, you've given me the ability to handle it. I don't know what it is. But we need to rely on the Lord to deal with it. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you for this morning, Lord. Lord, we, we thank you for these verses, Lord God, that we got to get through to set us up, Lord God, for what's to come in the rest of this chapter and the, the chapter after this with Hezekiah, Lord. God, I thank you for his trust in you. I thank you for his encouraging words to his people. I thank you for his increase in faith, Lord God, that we're going to see played out for the remainder of his kingship. But Lord God, I pray... For every man and woman in this room, Lord God. As we are all struggling with evil on some plane. As there's so much trouble all around us, inside of us. 
Maybe inside our friends and our families. Lord, I pray today be a day, Lord God, where we like Hezekiah, we come directly to you and your word. And we seek out your solution for our problem. God, we're appealing to you like he appealed, Lord God, in this this chapter. And we're calling you out to do what you love to do, Lord God, to come to our rescue. To set up the enemy for defeat, Lord God, when they thought they had victory. Lord God, move in a special way in your people this morning. God, open our eyes to see the things we need to cry out to you for help with. And Lord God, bring the solution. Bring the healing. And then, Lord God, I pray that we leave here, Lord God, trusting in you and receiving that blessing in your name. Amen.